best way to learn is to talk to somebody who disagrees with you. Because if we if we stop talking to people who have different views, then how are we ever going to know what we believe? Robert Reich is coming to the end of his full-time teaching career at the University of Berkeley, California. He has been an educator for 40 years. Today, he's the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at Berkeley, and he lectures on economics and inequality to a room full of 800 students. In the 1990s, Reich served as the Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton and later became an advisor to Barack Obama. He's extremely active in the media. He's the author of 18 books. He's huge on Facebook and on Twitter and now on Substack too. In short, he's a master communicator, a writer, an illustrator, and a video maker. His life project, he tells me in this conversation, is taking on bullies. We talk about what that means and about politics and the culture today. What are students are like these days, how they are different to other generations, and what it's like getting old, which is something he can hardly believe is happening to him. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Robert Reich. I should call you Robert, right, for the purposes of professional uh, well, appearances. Well, I, I answer to almost anything, but you, uh, it's appropriate for a former cabinet officer uh, to address me as your Excellency. <laughs> yes. yes. Your Majesty, Majesty, maybe something like that. Okay, okay. But Robert, between us, Robert is fine. Right, sorry. Your, your Majesty Robert Reich, well, thank you very much for joining me on The Active Voice. Delighted, delighted <laughs> to be here. I understand this is your last semester at Berkeley. Uh, my, no, no, no. My last semester teaching. Teaching is an important Full time. Uh, but I will be, I'll, I'll be affiliated with Berkeley and I will probably come back and teach a, uh, a session, maybe a class here, class there. I, I love teaching. Great. And I should mention for listeners that we are here in uh, Majesty Robert's office and we're on the Berkeley campus. We're at the Goldman School of Public Policy where you're, you have the title as a Chancellor's Chair of Public Policy. Is, is that the right? Professor of Public Policy. You know, titles, you know, we've joked about titles. For some people in this culture, and I don't mean just academe, I mean the American culture, titles are really important. But I think it's useful to take them with a grain of salt. Why do you say that? Because uh, it's what people do that counts. What they, it, It's who they are that counts. And I think that we're too obsessed with status and title and, you know, all of those ridiculous hierarchical things. Agreed, agreed. Okay, good. Good to get that off the chest. So we're here at Berkeley in your office. This is your last semester of full-time teaching. How long have you been at Berkeley and how long have you been teaching? Uh, well, I came here in 2004. And I started teaching in 1981 at Harvard. Not nearly as good a school as Berkeley, <laughs> but, um, you know, you have to just sort of come up in the world, as it were. Wow. Okay. So why did you come to Berkeley? Uh, I love it. And I knew I would. It's a public university, for one thing. And I think that does distinguish it in a very important set of ways from most big private universities. And it is the best public university in the United States, if not the world. And... 42 years of teaching, which is one year longer than I've been alive. Oh, oh, Hamish, you just really did <laughs> yeah. rub it in. Sorry, no. You I, have to do that. I'm congratulating you on your endurance and uh, achievement at such a high level for such a long time. Well, I haven't been teaching constantly uh, since 1981. Yeah, some other things I, I did some other way. things, but yeah. uh, this has been my calling, as it were. 
So how does it feel to be in the final run of that, for, uh, at least on a full-time basis? Well, I have mixed feelings, honestly. It's bittersweet. I love teaching. I love my classes. I teach both graduate students and undergraduate students. Uh, the undergraduates uh, are open. I mean, graduate students are open too, but they're more more vocational. They know what they're doing mm. in life. The undergraduates are so kind of, they're, they're fun, they're they're interesting, they're open, they're impressionable. And uh, I teach, um, well, I teach, one of the te- classes I teach is a very large class of undergraduates, about 800 of them. I heard this. How do you, how do you teach 800 people at once? Well, it's interesting because uh, they tell me what they need to know and what they want me to do. Now, I know that sounds very West Coast when I say that, <laughs> but they, but I come out, I have a general idea of what I want to talk about, and I have some slides, and I've got polls, and I've got uh, Q&A, and I've got uh, all sorts of things. Uh, but I look at them, and I get a sense from those 800 faces of what they would what they're curious about, where they want me to go at any given moment. So I just, I just, I just launch myself. It's like, it's like uh, going on off on a trapeze without, without any, you know, any, any netting. And I think I can do it because I've been teaching so long. Uh, and I continue to read their faces. Uh, attention spans of uh, 20 year olds are not all that great. So I try to mix it up very, very fast. And if I see their attention lagging or if I, I see they're, you know, they're, they're confused about something, uh, they're telling me constantly what they want. Side point on that. Have attention spans changed over the generations from what you've noticed? I would say yes, particularly with regard to anything that requires kind of continuous intellectual attention. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, in any way that the students now are inferior to students uh, 40, 42 years ago. Uh, but um, I think that they're, the culture that they've grown up in, in these current students, uh, is a culture of much faster kinds of information and, you know, uh, internet and they're, they're on computers and they're on their iPhones and they're just, um, they can absorb information and ideas in a different way. Does that handicap them in any way? Does it, does it give them an advantage? Over what? Over previous generations when it comes to processing information, when it no, comes to I, I driving society forward, etc. I don't, it, I mean, I can make the argument that, uh, that it gives them an advantage, that they're processing at a much faster rate a lot of different kinds of information, uh, very, almost simultaneously. They're also very visually acute. That is, they can process visual cues in videos and films much, much faster than a pre, any previous generation. Uh, they're not quite as verbal. Um, and I think, again, that has to do with the milieu in which they grew up. What do you think it might be that makes them less verbal? Uh, it, there, there is a little bit. Now, I am not a, a brain psychologist. I don't understand exactly what happens in the brain. Uh, all I can tell you is that from my experience and observation, uh, young people today are using a different set of skills, different parts of their brain. Maybe it is right brain rather than left brain. That would be the cartoon version. And of course, when you use a brain or you use a muscle, you're developing it. When something is not being used, it sort of goes into quiescence. And I think that is the case with the the verbal and longer term verbal part of the uh, young memory today or the young brain today. 
And so when you look at this generation compared to previous generations that you've taught, do you come out feeling any difference in terms of your optimism or pessimism uh, for how they might go out and lead the world in the future? I'm much more optimistic uh, about the present generation. I'm, I'm less optimistic about the world, mm. but I'm more optimistic about the present generation uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, they seem to be more committed to uh, fundamental change in the world. I think um, climate change has really affected them. Uh, Forty years ago, nobody was really talking about climate change. I, I think this generation is much more internationally minded. Uh, they are concerned about what is happening in places around the world in ways that 40 years ago, undergraduates didn't even think about. This generation of undergraduates also is aware of the possibility of authoritarianism, fascism, the loss of democracy in ways that 40 years ago, most people just took for granted. I mean, you know, we were, uh, we had won the Second World War. Obviously, we had gone through 30 years of economic growth and uh, America was dominant. Uh, there was the Soviet, you know, threat. But when I started teaching uh, in 1981, even that was gone. So a lot of these young people just simply have a larger a larger way of thinking about society and the world. How much do you think the internet and social media has to do with that? I think uh, social media and the internet have a lot to do with the, again, I use the word milieu, the, the kind of surrounding in which these young people are finding themselves. Uh, and I am teaching across this big chasm, Hamish. I mean, I, I'm aware that I'm, I have to use words and in ways and in phrases and syllables and paragraphs that they can get. I have to use a lot of visual aids. I have to use a lot of, um, a lot of humor. I mean, 41 years ago, yes, it was important to use humor, but uh, a spoonful of sugar lets the medicine go down. But now humor is even more important because I think that many of these young people are stressed much more than they were 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to sort of make room for intellectual activity, for questioning, for the kind of thing you want to happen in a classroom, uh, when there is a lot of stress in these people, uh, you've got to kind of calm them down. And humor is one of the great universal solvents. And where do you think that stress comes from? Is it the, the crises of the moment? I think that stress is a combination of the outside crises like global uh, climate change uh, and uh, nuclear proliferation and the war in Ukraine. Uh, and uh, simultaneously, they're worried about their getting a job, uh, paying the rent. They're worried about even buying, uh, even even getting a family going because the cost of living is so much higher in so many places where they want to live, mm -hmm. like the Bay Area. And how do you think that international perspective that this younger generation has that you're seeing balances against a local perspective, given that they live in the internet? A lot of us live on the internet. We sort of are already, we're already in the metaverse. Like there's someone in, someone who goes to a, a liberal arts university in Saigon has as much in common with us in some ways as the, the, the neighbor who never went to university. So to what, to what extent do you think there is a trade-off uh, between having an internationalist sort of view of things versus uh, a focus of what's happening in my backyard? Well, when you say a trade-off, it's an interesting word to use. I, I think that um, 
young people today, if they have a four-year college degree from a fairly good or, like Berkeley, a superb university, (laughs) I think that they uh, do connect with the equivalent of college graduates uh, from very good universities around the world, as you say. And they have less connection geographically and intellectually and emotionally with people who uh, live within three miles of their homes or their rental homes or the rental units um, who don't have the same kind of intellectual uh, equipment or credential or uh, graduate degrees. That is good in, the, in, in one respect, that we do want people to be thinking globally. Uh, but it's uh, potentially very, very bad in another. It's too easy for people to secede from their neighbors, their communities, their societies into little bubbles of people who are just as rich, wealthy, just as endowed, privileged as they are, and forget about everybody else. And the ties that bind us together as human beings become frayed. The human connection on which most sociology, most patriotism and nationalism, most sense of uh, civic boosterism is based, is disappearing. And you've had an interesting view of this, um, not only for being, uh, for being a professor for 40 some years, but also in the 90s, you were the Secretary of Labor under, uh, in Bill Clinton's administration, and a very effective and successful one. And the 90s is looked back on now, uh, at least among people of my generation and my set, as this time in American history where things were going kind of well. It's like there's nostalgia for the 90s at the moment. And it's in sharp contrast to the 2020s where things feel a lot more stressful, a lot more messy. Uh, there are more crises. Uh, uh, the US is kind of having its own crisis of identity, it seems. How does that contrast feel to you given those experiences you've had and given the life you're living now? Well, I think there is indeed a contrast. Uh, As I said, the Soviet Union was imploding in the 1980s. Not everybody knew it was, but it was. Uh, And the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, And so by the 1990s, the United States really did not have any kind of international competitor. Uh, Japan was coming on the scene as an economic competitor, and people got very nervous about that. And there was a lot of anti-Japanese feeling, as there is today about China. And for many of the same reasons, uh, although China is also a political player in a way that uh, Japan wasn't. Uh, but we did have in the 1990s a little bit of a reprieve from the Cold War uh, and from Cold War mentality. There was supposed to be a peace dividend. It never occurred. I don't know what happened to it. Uh, we could have and should have got on with the work that we really neglected, which is giving every American the opportunity to get ahead uh, to uh, make the most of his or her, you know, native endowed capacities, um, you know, to uh, to have safety nets for people who, for no fault of their own, will fall down through the cracks. Uh, safety nets that are at least as comparable to other advanced nations. I mean, we, the United States, as you know, you are from New Zealand. I mean, it looks, it must have looked very strange to you when you first got here. I mean, this is. 
It's socialism for the rich, as has been said many times. You've got bank bailouts, and, you know, if you're very, very wealthy, uh, you can count on a lot of nice things happening to you to support you if you run into bad luck. But if you are an average, normal, working person, uh, this is the harshest form of capitalism in the world. And in the 1990s, we'd had an opportunity to do something about it. We did not do it. Uh, and I look back on those times with some sort of sadness. Do you think we have any opportunity to undo that? Well, we we do. I, I kept on thinking, you know, first of all, after 9-11, there was a crisis. Maybe a crisis brings us together and we could do some very basic things for all of us as members of the same society. We didn't. Uh, as you remember, George W. Bush uh, looked at that crisis of 9-11 and said, go out and spend. That's what we could do. That was the sacrifice we were supposed to make. And then after the 2008 bank uh, failure and banking crisis, I thought, well, there, there's something. I mean, maybe Obama uh, could say to the bankers and to the Wall Street, you know, there, there is some responsibility here. We're, we're bailing you out. Uh, maybe you can understand uh, that you have some responsibility to underwater homeowners, for example, or to students who are borrowing and, and can't even use bankruptcy to reorganize their debts. Uh, maybe we can look at finance different, differently. Well, we didn't. And uh, on and on it goes. I mean, every time we have a crisis, we don't seem to have the capacity to turn that into an opportunity to re-examine uh, what we owe one another as members of the same society. Now, maybe that's because, as you are suggesting, uh, those of us who are privileged can now so easily secede from the rest of society that we say, well, why should we? This moment in politics is an interesting one, given that context, because it seems like even though there are many problems with their party and there are many ills, the Republicans, for example, seem to be more open to the kind of thinking that used to be the domain exclusively of the Democrats when it comes to, and there are a range of opinions and the range of things being said, and like the, there's no such thing as a monolithic Republican Party anymore. But when it comes to things like Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security, where in the George W. Bush era, there was a kind of a mania for cutting those benefits and slashing spending on those things. And now in sort of the Donald Trump era, era that those have become things that seem untouchable, even for the Republicans. So if that is true, and I think it's arguable to what extent it might be true, would that represent a chance for a kind of a reset on some of the economic questions that you're describing? Well, I disagree with you on Republicans. I think they they really hate Social Security and Medicare, and they are trying to erode it. But here's the important point that you were making, and I think there is some very important truth to this, and that is that the United States does not have a working-class party. Parliamentary systems around the world uh, do very often have labor parties. The United States has had, uh, certainly from 1933 through uh, maybe the 1960s, a Democratic Party that embraced the working class. And then starting in the 1970s, the Democrats began abandoning the working class, uh, running to the upper middle class, the swing suburb, the suburban swing voters, uh, who were allegedly uh, the people who determined elections. The Republicans, meanwhile, uh, and this became very evident, uh, especially after Donald Trump was elected president, uh, began filling the void. 
and going after the working class vote. The Republicans, and, and Donald Trump really was the quintessence of this, uh, decided instead to exploit working class grievances, anxieties, frustrations, that for 40 years, the working class, basically, if you don't have a college degree, you have not partaken of the uh, the gains of, a, of an economy that's three times larger than it was uh, 40 years ago. And, um, you know, we started talking about my teaching over the last 42 years. Well, the irony is that all this happened over the last 40 years. From the time I began teaching, and there's no causal connection, I assure you. From the time I began teaching, uh, the typical worker, the median worker, right in the middle, half above, half below, has seen no real gain adjusted for inflation in terms of real purchasing power. Uh, now, you can imagine the frustrations, the the confusion, the anxieties, the anger, ultimately, that this creates, the sense that the game is rigged against the average working person. And now, let's assume Trump has moved off the same. We will know much more uh, later on. Uh, but even if he has not, you have other people like Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, who were using culture wars, who are, who are focusing their entire campaigns on, you know, you, education should not, the schools in Florida should not talk about um, racism and America's history of racism, or should not even mention transgender students or transgender uh, people. That has nothing, whatever, to do with the plight of America's working class. But it, again, it it takes the frustrations and anger and channels them to these, these issues that people can get uh, kind of angry about. Then how much of concern for you is this culture war stuff? Is it something that you've seen come and go in the past and it's like a momentary sort of moment in the culture? Or is it something of a greater concern for you? Well, it's always been kind of an undercurrent in the United States. And I say always. I mean, I, I you know, in the 1840s and 1850s, there were uh, panics and, you know, just uh, about, uh, about foreigners, uh, immigrants, uh, and of course, racism. I mean, it was not just the South. It was the entire country, mm-hmm. uh, indigenous people. Uh, and then you, you have periodically these, these, these upsurges in, in hateful[ness] and bigotry in the 20th century. It's centered or it was triggered by communism. I mean, the Russian Revolution, we had a Red Scare, and then, of course, we had uh, Joe McCarthy and the communist witch huts. But all of this enabled and provided an opportunity for the haters and the bigots and the anti-Semites and others uh, to rear their ugly heads. They never became, in America, dominant, I think, because the middle class was large and growing. If you have a large and growing middle class, uh, people uh, don't really succumb to this crap. I mean, they say to themselves, and, and, you know, basically internally, look, I, I, even if I believe it, it doesn't matter because I have more opportunities and I'm going to do better. And let me just stick to uh, working hard and, and, and making a better life for myself and my kids. But if you don't have a large and expanding middle class, if the middle class actually starts to shrink, and that's what we've seen over the last 40 years, then you're in new territory. That's when the so-called cultural wars, the the bigotry, the hate, uh, then it becomes far more dangerous. So why is it more of a concern when the middle class is shrinking and cultural wars start to take hold? Because then you invite 
a political movement, uh, you start seeing democratic, small d, institutions under assault. The terrible reality of January 6th, 2021, was, I think, a demonstration of what can happen. Now, I'm I'm not trying to draw a direct causal connection between the frustrations of the working class and that calamity, uh, but I think that there is a connection in the sense that the hatefulness, bigotry, and conspiratorial fears uh, that Donald Trump exploited um, had their origin and continue to have their origin in this massive sense of insecurity in the working class. And what might be a plausible way to reverse that trend in the United States? It's like, is there a political response? Is there a government response? Is it a, the way businesses operate? Is it the way culture is carried? How, like, is this, is it like, it seems like this is a trend of empires. They go down and then they start going down faster and faster. Well, it could be a vicious cycle. And let me explain the dynamic of the vicious cycle, which I worry about a great deal. And that is that as wealth moves to the top, uh, wealth cannot be separated from power. Wealth is not a zero-sum game, obviously, but power is a zero-sum game. If if people have it, uh, that means other people don't. And if power moves to the top with wealth, uh, through lobbying, through campaign contributions, through all sorts of other devices, uh, then the rules of the game can continuously be rigged to generate even more wealth at the top. And that's, in a sense, what's been happening. I mean, almost every day you see changes in the rules and laws governing the economy, antitrust, uh, labor laws, uh, you, you name it, in which... Um, those who have a su- substantial degree of power in society, mostly, I'm talking about big corporations and Wall Street, uh, they are changing the rules or pushing the rules in a certain direction, uh, making it harder for people who are in the center, middle class, working class people, uh, to do better. Um, why, for example, don't we have paid medical leave? paid family leave in this country. After the pandemic, you would think that would be the first thing. Everybody said, well, well, of course we have to now. Most countries have paid leave. Uh, we, of course we have to do it because we had a pandemic and we saw the needs. I mean, it was it was in the interest of everybody, public health, to have paid leave. We don't want people to be working and sick with COVID. I thought, well, that was an easy one. It never happened. Hasn't happened. Why not? Because the power, people with the power whether they're Democrats or Republicans, uh, are not actually putting it high on their agenda. So in your view, what has to happen to turn things around? Well, there's a reset. I call it a reset. That is, to get out of a vicious cycle. The old way of thinking was that you needed a war. I mean, the, you know, the Gilded Age ended with World War I. Or you needed a vast depression. Um, what was remaining of the aristocracy in America, uh, they lost their shirts in the Great Depression. I think that that's too negative a view. And I think that in the American context, it also is a ahistoric because there was another period in the 1880s and 1890s, that first Gilded Age, 
uh, in which a progressive era came along in the, well, embodied by President Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and came up with a whole bunch of reforms, the most important of which was to get money out of politics. Now, Teddy Roosevelt tried, and there were a lot of laws on the books, and they actually did a lot of good for a while. Uh, the, the other most important thing that Teddy Roosevelt did and tried, and Woodrow Wilson after him, was antitrust. A bust up the big economic monopolies and oligopolies. Uh, those two are absolutely essential. You've got to get money out of politics, big money out of politics, and you've got to bust up these concentrations of economic power. Uh, if you do that, you can reset the system. So uh, maybe things will incrementally improve. You have an interesting view, having occupied leading roles in three different institutions, academia, media, and government. Why have you carved out a space for yourself in each? And what do you think about the relative power that each institution has in this current moment? Well, I think my central focus always, and my calling in the kind of almost religious sense, uh, almost, I don't consider myself a religious man, but I'm almost in the religious sense, is to be an educator. Uh, and in every one of those domains, I have dedicated, my, but dedicated myself to educating the public. Uh, it's what I do as a formal educator here at Berkeley. It's what I do uh, in terms of social media. It's what I did in government. I mean, you can't be a a successful government official, and I I like to think that I was pretty successful without educating the public about what's important and why you're doing what you're doing and, and getting public support uh, for your agenda. And which one do you think, of those three, which one do you think is the, like, is the most effective right now, given the conditions of the current culture, for getting the messages that you need to get out into the world, into the world? Well, message, getting a message out is pretty easy now. The question is whether anybody hears it. Mm -hmm. And even if they hear it, whether they act on it, whether it changes their premises, whether it affects how they view the world, and it gives them the ability to be effective, gives them agency. Now, that's a, that's a lot of ifs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it would be presumptuous of me to say that I can do any of that in any of those domains. But I think uh, I have a particular faith in teaching. Government, it's very difficult to get through to people because you're, you're dealing with layers and layers and layers of, of media, but, but also ugly, angry. We've talked about this already. With the media itself, it's, it's difficult because you tend, particularly in this era of social media, to be talking to people who already agree with you. Uh, it's hard to get out of that bubble and start talking to people who don't already or aren't already predisposed to what you're saying. But there's something very pure. Maybe the, the purest form is facing 800 undergraduates uh, and not with the idea of inculcating a particular ideology in them. That's not what I do at all. It's helping them understand the world, helping them press the reveal code key. Remember that old key? I don't, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You're too young. Too young, just uh, a on, on, our, on our old computers, we just press a key and it said reveal code. But the, but the beauty of that analogy mm -hmm. is it just, it, it, it showed you what was behind 
the coding behind what you were doing uh, on the computer. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing that I try to do in the classroom, that I try to do with teaching. Uh, reveal the code, reveal the system, uh, get behind it so that they, for example, can read the newspaper or they can um, go online and, and actually uh, understand at a deeper level what's happening. And what gives you this personal passion, this religious sort of drive to carry these messages into the world? Like, why why are you doing all this? Well, that's a, a hard question to answer because you're asking, you know, about, about basic human motivation. I suppose if I were going to be terribly introspective about it, it, it comes back to the fact that I'm I'm very short. And when I was a kid, I always had to rely on a few older boys as protectors just to keep the bullies away. Uh, and when I went off to college, one of my former protectors, who I hadn't seen in years, named Michael Schwerner, was down registering voters in Mississippi when he was brutally murdered by the Ku Klux Klan, he and two other civil rights workers. And when I learned that my protector from my little childhood bullies had been tortured and murdered by the the real bullies, the real bullies of America. I think, honestly, Hamish, that changed my life. It changed the way I saw. Talk about reveal code. It, 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 it suddenly I saw how important power was in society and the abuses of power going on between employers, employees, men and women, uh, uh, white people, black people, people of color. I saw how power was being abused and how people were being bullied in all sorts of ways. And if I didn't do what I could to stop the bullying, then I failed. How old were you when he was killed? I was 18. Did that set you on a path to designing the kind of life that would help you fight back against bullies? I, you know, these things happen, and I'm sure you have similar stories. Why do you do what you do? Uh, most of us never find out. I, I think I just discovered this because I was talking to somebody years ago about um, Michael Schwerner, and suddenly I just was overcome with emotion. I, I think that we you know, sort of subconsciously follow certain paths, and we we don't know exactly why we do it. I, with me, I did discover, and I discovered that fighting the bullies was what I had to do. Uh, as simple as that. Is that your overriding mission? Is it as simple as I'm here to stand up to bullies? It's more than just standing up to bullies, but because by standing up to bullies, you're protecting people from the misuse of power. You're saving democracy in the best sense of democracy because democracy really is a theory of self-government which is designed to protect people from misuse of power, from authoritarian, from fascists, from, from people who would take their lives or grab them in the middle of the night out of their homes and shoot them. Democracy is the most important bulwark we have against the bullies. And what does it feel like to have that clear sense of purpose? It's a relief. It's very calming. I don't think I've ever said that before, but I, I think it, it is true. At the age of 76, I feel not as if I've succeeded. In fact, if anything, I feel like I've failed. But I, I feel like I've at least understood that I've had a purpose. How does that affect how you use your energy and how you view uh, the degree to which certain activities you carry out are uh, successful or not successful? 
I, I don't consciously in every day measure whether the work I did the previous day or the previous week reached X number of people. I, I don't do that. Um, uh, Substack, by the way, does do that. <laughs> and it gives, it gives me kind of a false sense that I may be reaching many more people and in a more profound way than I, than I am. And uh, social media gives you all sorts of feedback mechanisms, but it's easy to be seduced by them. I think that I tell myself over and over again the truth, which is that I'm one tiny, tiny voice in a vast cacophony. But if I can reach some people, and this is again why why teaching is so satisfying, because I'm I'm standing there and I'm talking to these students, and there are eight hundred of them, but I can see their faces, and I I know when I'm reaching them. I can see it. Uh, you you know, it's it's the most direct and satisfying form of human interaction. Uh, if you're interested in, as I am, giving people the equipment they need to be participants in a democracy. Everything else is sort of fun and fluff, but teaching is real. Yeah, what do you think you'll draw the most contentment from when you look back at the end of your life, which hopefully is many, many years away from now, and survey what you have achieved? Uh, and there are big things in government, passing acts that help, help families. There are big things in um, in media, building up a successful substack or a, a, a giant social media presence or being you know, publishing 18 books or being on all the TV shows. And big things in academia, you're teaching classes that are filled with 800 people who are hanging on every word you say. But what are the things that will stick stick with you? What are the things that you'll feel draw the deepest contentment from when when it's just about time to go? Well, well I'm going to say something extremely banal and conventional, uh, and that is my family and my good friends. I mean, that's those are the people who I really take deep, deep sustenance from. And I, I'm fortunate enough to have two marvelous sons and two fabulous daughters-in-law and a, a, a grandchild. And, you know, again, as I say this, I think, you this is just so, so, you know, what everybody says. But it's true. It is true. I have a few good friends, not many, but a few very good friends. And what else is there beyond that? I, again, the students who have been, and there may be just a handful, have been genuinely inspired by me and whose lives have been changed. So it's very much because what you're doing is you have a very large goal. You're trying to defend democracy, defeat bullies or give power to the little guy. And for lots of people, that seems like too daunting to even start to attempt to take on. Well, it may be. It's too daunting when you put it that way. I, I'm daunted as as you say it. But also, as you say it, I say to myself, what else is there to do, Hamish? What is more important? And it's interesting that given those big goals, that the things that you will hold on to tightly, most tightly, are the close relationships with people, the, the intimate effect uh, on someone's life that you might have had. Is that a surprise to you? No, because it's, it's through those intimate connections that you're grounded, that you're given real meaning, that you are given also the power and courage uh, to take on the rest of the world. If those 
most intimate connections are not what they should be or could be, then I think you don't have the capacity to do everything else you need to do in life. And how is it, how does that help with dealing with the feedback that you mentioned in passing just before? Social media, you get a ton of feedback. You would have had feedback all through your career in different forms. Um, Substack, you get feedback from your Substack subscriptions. And some of this are people that intensely love and respect and admire you. And you also have the flip side of that, where there are people who intensely dislike you or oppose you and everything in between and things on the fringes and outside the fringes. How do you, and someone, uh, someone in a position like yours trying to achieve the things that you're trying to achieve, handle all of that? Or how do you approach it? What's your attitude to all that feedback? Well, I use it for what it is. Um, it's just a, either an indicator of your reach, which is nice to have. Um, the people who meet me on the street and say, I love your work, it doesn't really have much effect, honestly. I mean, I'm, I'm glad. People who, uh, in fact, just yesterday, somebody came by and I, I get these kinds of, this is one of these negative <laughs> comments. They said, I don't care what people say. I think you're great. <laughs> Backhanded you know, compliment. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I mean, it, there's all sorts of, I, mean, I was on the plane last week and somebody came up to me and had no idea who, who she was. And she said, what are we going to do? I mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, this, this person obviously was saying, I recognize you as somebody who thinks about large questions, and I am really fearful about the future, and so what are we going to do? Uh, and I just said to her, just don't worry, you know, um, uh, it'll it'll work out, which is, I suppose, what I fundamentally believe. But uh, the people who are negative toward me, if they, if they disagree with me, uh, that's fine. I mean, I Honestly, I was, last week I was debating a fellow named Arthur Laffer in Columbus, Ohio. I don't want to embarrass you in terms of asking if you remember Arthur Laffer. I, you, you can embarrass me all you want. I don't remember him. I'm, I'm okay. a foreigner in this culture, as usually That's my true. excuse. That's true. You, you get it. Also deeply <laughs> ignorant and uneducated. No, 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 no. Uh, most people actually your age don't remember Arthur Laffer. Arthur Laffer was the founder of supply-side economics. He was an advisor to Ronald Reagan. Um, he came up with uh, the whole idea of trickle-down economics. All right. Absolutely bullshit. I mean, completely, totally, utterly bullshit. But he's been peddling it for, you know, for 40 years. And yet I like him. We have fun together. I, I don't take personally the fact that he, you know, he disagrees with me. And I think that's an important thing to separate and keep clear and keep distinct. A disagreement is a disagreement. A, a personal dislike is something that is really qualitatively different. If somebody dislikes me personally, well, that's, that's too bad. Uh, if I've done something to offend them, I'm sorry. But that's not mostly what I'm dealing with. You wrote something recently about Robert Bork saying something similar, total political opposite, but you consider him a close friend and respect him. How do you think we're doing as a nation, as a society on that front. Because at the moment, what it looks like, especially on social media, which I kind of feel like is for better or worse, you know, whether we like it or not, kind of like the operating system for culture at the moment. On social media, the rule seems to be if you don't agree with everything everything I say, you're a non-human, you're a non-person. Well, you cannot be countenanced. So how do you think we're doing? Terrible. I mean, I, look, the essence 
of democracy is public deliberation, that you, you talk with people, you, you, you explore, you, you debate, you, you try to understand them, they try to understand you. It's never perfect. Uh, it's always imperfect. And we have gone to war, civil war, um, because we really, that broke down. And I tell my students, the best way to learn is to talk to somebody who disagrees with you. Because if we, if we stop talking to people who have different views, then how are we ever going to know what we believe? You know, then it's just a game, really. And the social media really, uh, I, I think, are providing a grave disservice in this regard. I think we need models. In fact, Art Laffer and I were talking about this last week when we, we debated. If he and I, and, you know, we joke around a lot. If he and I were just to be on a television screen and people would see, here's a Reagan conservative, the founder of supply-side economics, and here's a, you know, a progressive, and they like each other, they violently disagree. Violently, not in terms of violence, but violently in terms of argument. But they like each other. Well, that would blow people's minds. But that's the kind of thing we need so desperately. And that's what, uh, unfortunately, social media makes that almost impossible. And yet you're prolific and successful on social media. Your videos are on YouTube everywhere. You've got uh, very influential uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts. Do you make a calculation there about the degree to which you want to involve yourself in social media, knowing that it has this other side to it? Well, let me let me answer you in a certain way, saying that one of my goals on social media is to actually reach out beyond the bubble. And so, um, for example... Uh, the little group, nonprofit that um, I work with, Inequality Media, Civic Action, uh, what we do is we test the videos with uh, people who say they're independents or they're leaning Republican, and we see before and after they watch the video whether it affected their opinions. Uh, and then we try to figure out, well, what was it that worked if it did work? It's that kind of reaching out, affecting the purple rather than the blue that I am most interested in. That's real public education. Do you feel like social media has helped you achieve that? It could. It could, but it takes a lot of work. The easiest thing to do is just sit there and and give people what they want and affirm their predispositions and their prior convictions. Right. Do you ever find yourself struggling with that fight? Yes, all the time. Uh, I mean, I, I really don't think it is all that great an achievement uh, to just tell people what they already think. There may be some value in giving them thoughtful, reasoned arguments to undergird what they think so that maybe they can argue better. But no, I, I really think the big benefit is to reach beyond the bubble. Uh, now, how do you do that? Frankly, I'm spending a lot of time and energy trying to figure that out. Well, it strikes me that the social media model needs to be changed. This is why we are doing Substack, the project. It's hard. The types of behaviors and content that are rewarded by those systems are ones that are naturally filtering and funneling people into specific tribes. And it ramps up the, the tension. It ramps up the divisiveness, the conflict. And there's no way out of that, I think, in the social media structure as it stands, which is why we're trying to create a different system with Substack and change the incentives and cool down the discourse and improve discussions. Do you have any hope that this kind of more inclusive discourse or more tolerant discourse 
can have another golden era or can have a even just be improved from what it is if social media remains the way it is? Well, I think that distinction has to be drawn, Hamish, between civil discourse, which is very important, and discourse that gets beyond people's comfort level in terms of what they already believe or think. Mm -hmm. Making discourse more civil is relatively simple. I mean, you just basically take out all the trolls and all the, you know, you, what I do on Substack, very often I go through the comments and if somebody is being rude, you know, I will write them. I will say, this is not tolerable. And if you continue to do that, I'm going to exercise my prerogative and kick you off this forum. No, I, I do want at a minimum people to be civil with each other and thoughtful, ideally. Mm -hmm. uh, but beyond that, I want them to be open to the possibility that they may be wrong and that somebody else might be right, and therefore expose them to really good civil argument beyond their comfort zone. That's my goal. Now, can I do it on Substack? I don't know. I'm trying. Uh, I think I have some ideas on how to do that in terms of certain topics and certain ways of approaching certain topics. Again, it's going to be done with a little bit of humor. Um, one reason I draw little cartoons is because <laughs> actually uh, the humor, the Sugar does help reduce temperature, but uh, there are all sorts of little experiments that I'm carrying on constantly. I do it every day. Do you think of yourself as a writer? I think of myself as an educator, and to that extent, good writing uh, is necessary. Now, what is good writing? To be an educator, you've got to be really clear. You can't have long, complicated sentences. You can't be full of yourself. You can't be pretentious. You can't try to, you know, try to be somebody else. You've got to earn the trust of the reader. If that's good writing, that's yes, good writing. Well, that's, <laughs> that's what I try to do. And you do mix it up. You do, you do the illustrations, the cartoons, you do audio notes, you, you know, like narrated versions of your posts, do some podcasts. Um, you've done a, all sorts of uh, things in your career, TV, movies. When I walked into the room, you asked me if Substack could make a feature that would make it more simple to record and publish video. Why are you thinking in this multi-format kind of way, this multi-mode kind of uh, approach? Because, uh, number one, people don't absorb ideas in only one mode <laughs> they absorb them in thousands of modes, in thousands of ways, many of which they're not even aware of. Uh, and I, as an ed educator, really do want to be able to use as many, well, we, can, we conventionally call them platforms, but it's much more subtle than that. It's modes of thinking as possible. Uh, and secondly, uh, because I do want to continue to experiment in terms of reaching people who are otherwise unreachable. And if I can find a way in, I'll just, <laughs> I will burrow <laughs> into that way in. There's no, and I, I've come to the conclusion, actually, after doing this for years, that there's no simple, right, correct answer. It's just constant experimentation. Where do you draw the energy from? I don't really know. The reason there was that long pause is because I'm getting older. In fact, I'm, I look in the mirror and I'm much older than I feel like I should be. <laughs> For instance, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was meeting with a group of students for lunch, and uh, we got up, and I looked in a, a store window, kind of a reflected glass, and I saw my students walking along the sidewalk with this little old man. I thought, for a second, 
half a second. I thought, who is that little old man? He wasn't at lunch with us. It's shocking. And as you get old, your energy does flag a bit, or at least you've got to make choices about where you're going to put your energy. I hate to admit that. And maybe that pause, that long pause was just my struggling uh, to admit that fundamental reality. There must be something that compels you to go spend that energy, though. And you're prolific still, even if uh, even if you're quieting down in some other areas that are not seen. You're very you're publishing a lot. You're still teaching a lot. Your voice is uh, out there a lot. And I, I wonder, like, what gets you up to do that? I, I think it must be the same fundamental reality and force that I essentially discovered when I was eighteen that. It's all about constraining brutality. It's all about fighting the bullets. It's all about maintaining or creating or trying to create a society where people are safe enough uh, to go on not only enjoying life, but creating their own connections and their own creativity and, and, and having a good life. Every so often I go back to the film way before your time <laughs> and in a different, different culture uh, called It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it was um, released January of 1947, a few months after I was born. Jimmy Stewart played the character that only Jimmy Stewart could play, which was a, a good citizen. Uh, and he was confronting a bully in the form of Lionel Barrymore, who played Mr. Potter, uh, kind of an evil banker uh, who was trying to own everything in town, and turn uh, Bedford Falls into Pottersville. And in the movie, you got a sense of what the choice really was. What would happen if the bullies took over? And, of course, in 1947, America had prevailed over Nazism, uh, over fascism. And there was a fresh sense uh, that the, it, was, it was damn important to do this and I think my 18-year-old experience, when my own protector was murdered and tortured, tortured and murdered by the bullies, kind of brought it all into relief, made it clear what I saw as a kid when I watched It's a Wonderful Life, made it clear what I'm doing here, what, 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 what I have to do with the energy I have left. Do you think your 18-year-old self would be surprised by the level of success that you have had? No. Uh, again, you're talking about a word success. I don't know quite, you know, that's a loaded term. But uh, I came across uh, not long ago uh, an old Time magazine from 1968, I think it was, uh, in which I had been selected as one of the typical graduates of the class of 1968 from college. I don't know why Time magazine selected me, uh, but I was asked by a reporter, what do you think you will be doing 30, 40, 50 years from now? <laughs> and I said, and there's a quote, I'm quoted there as saying, well, it'll be a cross between a philosopher and a political hack. <laughs> <laughs> and so at some level, I knew what was going on. I knew what I was going to be doing. So what's next? You're going to finish up uh, with your full-time teaching at Berkeley this semester. Well, that that by finishing up teaching, that doesn't mean I'm finished teaching, but finishing up teaching courses, mm -hmm. uh, that'll free up a little bit of time. Uh, 
But、um, as you well know, I'm doing. You know, I'm writing a Substack every day. Every day. I hope you give me. You know, I don't know how many of your authors do every day, seven days a week. We're, Hello, we're going to put posters of your face all around every city <laughs> in America. Don't worry. <laughs> I mean, and、uh, and I have a lot of other things. You know, the videos and and、um, yeah. Not to mention, you know, my absolutely wonderful wife and my kids. And there's a lot to keep me busy. So you're not going to slow down. Well, I don't know why I should slow down, except for physical. Things. I mean, the the surprise shouldn't be a surprise. Intellectually, it's not a surprise. But the the actual emotional surprise is that the body doesn't last forever. You know, the body actually. You know, when you you, you hear old people talk about aches and pains,、mm-hmm. I never. I thought that was an expression.、Mm-hmm. I didn't know that was literal.、Mm-hmm. But there are literally aches and pains.、Uh, who knew? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you have all this in front of you.、Hey, yeah, no, I'm. Like, it's I, really wonderful. I mean, I envy you. I yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. I have noticed that I'm not as spry as I was even when I was 25, which is 16 years ago. So, I am. I'm looking forward to、uh, what. What I do hope is that I remain as sharp and capable. Uh, including physically as capable as you are in this room with me today, I think、uh, you're doing extremely well. And、uh, if this is、uh, the life that I can look forward to at 76, then I really look forward to that life. Good, thank you. I'm going to wrap it up, but I also want to come back to this question of "Don't worry, it's going to all work out." The thing that you said to the woman on the plane. Do you really believe that, and why? I think inherently, there's no reason to worry. Worrying gets you nowhere. I think you can work、uh, to improve your situation and the situation of people you love around you, and maybe even society, or maybe even the world. But the worry is a waste of energy. I mean, the Earth itself is going to survive. Whether human beings survive on the Earth fifty million years from now, I don't know. But the Earth will survive. All of us will die. What's there to worry about? <laughs> Well, I think that's a pretty good note to finish the conversation on. But thank you, Robert Reich, Your Excellency, Your Majesty,、uh, for this time. Congratulations on all you've achieved and、uh, continue to achieve. Thanks for your contributions and thanks for publishing on Substack. Well, Hamish, thank you. I've really enjoyed it, and thank you for inviting me onto Substack. I didn't even thank you for that. That was very, very profoundly important. Wow! And、um, and I've enjoyed it so much. I'm glad it's working out so well. It's it's a pleasure to watch. You can find Robert Reich on Substack at robertreich.substack.com, and you spell Reich, R-E-I-C-H, robertreich.substack.com. See you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com, R-E-A-D. dot substack dot com. Dot substack dot com.